The Guardian. Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast on The Guardian, sponsored by Heineken. Proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Hello and welcome to The Guardian's Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. I'm Sandy War, and coming up we'll be discussing all the weekend's final pool matches including Australia's heroic defeat of Wales and Ireland's all-black avoiding victory over France. We'll also be previewing all the quarter-finals. Well, joining me today is comedian and broadcaster Andy Zaltzman. From The Observer we have happy Scotland fan Martin Love and from The Guardian we have Dan Lucas. Hello everybody. Hello. Uh, so much has happened in the last two weeks so before we get stuck into discussing the quarterfinals uh, let's just take a moment to reflect on what an amazing World Cup it's been we've had full stadiums lots of close matches and we couldn't really have asked for much more just from a sort of general perspective I mean maybe Andy we start with you what's what's been your impression of it thus far? Uh I think it's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, as an England fan, obviously there's been the odd disappointment yeah, along we'll, the we'll, way. we'll come back to that a bit later. Uh, but um, yeah, from the, the the crowds being, you know, I mean, extraordinary crowds, given that you know, ticket prices for a lot of the games are really quite expensive. Uh, fantastic atmospheres. I think the style of play has generally been really good. And we've you know seen teams like Namibia really giving it a go, despite, you know, limited resources. And uh, I, I think it's, yeah, it's, I've enjoyed it more than any other World Cup, I think. But I mean, I guess it's easier to remember the one that's happening now rather than something from 16 years ago. Dan, what's going to live with you? The thing I've enjoyed the most is the way that teams, even when they have nothing to play for, seem to be playing the game for 80 minutes. They're not giving up. Look at uh, the way Namibia kind of went from one end of the pitch to the other to score a try against Argentina at the very death. Uh, look at the way uh, Japan in the final pool game against the USA, even though they'd won the match, they, there was nothing to play for. They were still trying to score another try, going from their own 22 right uh, you know, after the clock had gone into the red. Um, look at the way uh, Romania fought back against Italy, despite having... Well, they weren't going to win the match, so they weren't going to get that third place that would see them qualify for 2019. Uh, the other thing is, uh, there has been quite a lot of ambitious play. I remember watching... Uh, Argentina against Tonga and there were barely any kicks from hand you can uh, contrast that with the way Argentina have traditionally played the game it's very much been a kind of forward dominated kick the ball uh, style play similar to what Ireland play now but uh, that game neither side it wasn't much of a contest the match um, for the last after the last 20 minutes any going into the last 20 minutes anyway but uh, there was real ambition from both sides they they wanted to entertain these big crowds that they're getting the fantastic atmospheres um, that are being generated and they wanted to put on a show for those. Martin, there's been more more depth of entertainment perhaps from the World Cup than we might have expected. Oh, it's been amazing, hasn't it? And um, I think one of the things, I was trying to think what's made it so successful, <coughs> the, the quality of rugby I think has been exceptional. Um, everybody's talked about the Tier 2 t- um, divisions, how they're playing much better than before. But as a, as speaking strictly as a, as a pure <coughs> rugby fan... Um, I think what we've all forgotten is actually playing, watching rugby when there is no time difference to take into it. You know, none of us are getting up at three o'clock in the morning or sitting down at 10 a.m. You know, it just has fitted seamlessly into our lives. You know, you sort of get home. There's often a game at eight in the evening you can sit up. Weekends have been built about rugby. I've never watched so much rugby (laughs) in the last three or four weeks as I haven't, you know, ever, I don't think. The fans have been fantastic. I went to 
the only game, sadly, that I've seen live, I think, has got the tag of most boring game of the cup, which was Italy Ireland last Sunday. Yeah, and I, it was, I was at that. So I, I didn't you, even think it was that bad. It wasn't. You know, yeah, I got home. Everyone tag. was saying it was awful. Yeah, I thought, but it was, it was the first yeah. game after England had gone out, so everybody was yeah. talking about that's the end of the World Cup. And but actually, the atmosphere was fantastic, wasn't it? You know, the, there was green trains going in. The stadium was awash with kind of leprechaun ears and hats, and it was wonderful. I'll was, be honest, I was doing the minute by minute for that and reconsidering my career. Choices. Really? See, it I was paid for a dire. ticket for that, and I thought it was quite an interesting. Con, I thought it, you know Italy's defence was amazing. They'd had a little bit more class in attack. Um, Sixteen years ago, in the '99 World Cup in England's group, New Zealand put a hundred points on Italy, and England put a hundred points on Tonga. Um, and I think that that illustrates, you know, those were not what you, you would call minnows now. Yeah. Um, I think shows how far. It, I mean, it, that said, we've still got eight quarter finalists. Four, all four from the rugby championship and four of the old Five Nations. So there's still you know, a way to go before we have a competition <coughs> where you don't basically know most of the quarter finalists before it starts. It's a problem that cricket's uh, always had and dealt with extremely badly. Uh, I think the the issue that highlights is once again something we've discussed before: the ridiculous drawing the pools three years before the tournament. Yes, it's place. clinically insane. Yeah, and um, and we talked about this before the tournament started, and it was, you know, it's been. Unfair on England and equally unfair on Wales, Australia, Fiji, and even Uruguay, who would basically deny you know even a chance of a win. Happen to play four top ten, top ten teams, and we might even see for Wales and Australia that the damage playing that pool has done affects them later in the tournament. For Fiji, it's affected them for the next World Cup because you know they might have expected a third place and automatic qualification. As a result, it's going to be tougher for them for the next World. It's uh, and it was good that Gatland came out and and. Uh, and said this, so it didn't sound like sour grapes because his grapes must have tasted pretty sweet at the time um, after <laughs> beating England and, and qualifying. But I mean, it was clearly idiotic. And you'd think, you know, you've put England in another group that have probably, you know, made it into the quarter. I think the grapes will get onto England later. Yeah, we will get onto England. But, well, I'll, I'll save your pain right. for that moment. But let's move on to the, to the weekend matches. Let's start with the pools A and B. And as I said, we'll go on to England later. But let's start with the top two in pool A, who had already qualified, as we know. They met at Twickenham, where it finished Australia 15, Wales 6. This was the Wallabies' 11th straight win over Wales, but surely the toughest of these matches. That six-point lead after an hour looked very fragile when they were reduced to 13 men for seven minutes. They absorbed the most intense pressure in this period, made 15 tackles in two minutes. Dan, maybe let's start with you. It was amazing to watch this match. It was an incredible match to watch. Um, I think you have to give enormous credit to Australia and their defence, especially when they went down to 13 men. It was reminiscent of uh, 2002 when England went on tour to New Zealand and they had a six-man scrum that held out a series of... uh, a six-man pack, sorry, that held out a series of New Zealand scrums on their own line. Um, I thought Wales maybe played into their hands a little bit. I thought some of the decision-making was poor from the Welsh um, if they'd kind of held their their own discipline they would have probably scored I thought there, there was a moment when George North got free on the uh, on the wing he, he was playing outside centre but he moved, went out to the wing and looked to be heading for the line cut inside and was taken down just thought I thought if he'd backed himself and gone for the corner there was a definite try on there so Wales maybe lacked a little composure but that that's not, not to take away from that remarkable Australian tackling effort we don't tend to uh, associate Australia with huge defensive shifts like that. Yes, it's a change of character, isn't it, with the way the Australians play? They've gone from this sort of open, free-flowing team 
who can show that actually when it comes to it they can also sort of you know um, get down and do the hard and dirty work uh, it was extraordinary I mean and it was one of those games where I was watching sort of as a neutral but obviously you know as a northern hemisphere person you always support those but you were able to actually sit back and just enjoy this extraordinary spectacle and this chess match um, between these two coaches who really are on top of their game um, but you've never I mean I, you know as, as we're all saying and everybody's saying you know that kind of defence it must you know what the toll that must have taken on their bodies I cannot imagine I mean Pocock afterwards had a shiner like you wouldn't believe you know sort of grinning from one side of his face to the other but headaches all round I expect. So you can trump us all Andy you were there. I was there yes um sitting amongst some quite excitable um, Welsh and Australian fans. I mean, there was always the feeling that, although it clearly mattered, it didn't matter as much as it might have done, that they were both... Uh, through Wales, you know, they didn't show the wit and invention that you associate traditionally with Welsh rugby. Uh, Is that a bit of naivety? They had that advantage and they didn't seem to make it pay. Don't it can be naivety. They're such an experienced team. It's you know They generally don't... They haven't always played with the greatest finesse under Gatland, and what they do has been pretty effective. They have an unerring nose where the opposition is, both which is good in defence and considerably less good in attack. Uh, and I, th- I think that will be a worry for them. It, in that regard, maybe South Africa is quite a good matchup for them in the in the quarterfinals. But yeah, you know, they were still pretty pretty good. They defended really well. They shut down the Australian attack. Um, and yeah, you know, it was trialless games go. The fifth, fifth, it was the first. I think the only trialless game so far. Um, and most of the games have had at least three tries in, and um, you know it was a, a kind of classic of its of its type. Which, you know, whereas in the past, I mean, I seem, seem to remember kind of wading through games which were just, I mean, almost kind of felt like waiting for a funeral. At some of them, it was. You know, and we discovered that it's been, it's been uh, a joyous tournament. <laughs> Dan Bigger and Burn Foley are human. We actually had some kicks being missed. Yes. We'll forgive them for that. Though. That's Yeah, that's good to see. I, I like to see kicks being... I think place kicks are too easy. It's like kicking a stationary ball at a thing the size of a bus and no one's allowed to get in the way. I'd like to see, you know, posts that move a bit more. And, <laughs> Bend, um, maybe. And also, I'd like to Sway see... In the wind. I, I, I wish they'd stop the clock for goal kicks and basically just give them 45 seconds so they haven't all this... I mean, what Dan Bigger does a kind of elaborate dance dance mm. routine. I actually yesterday um, watched was timing Sexton. I sort of became slightly obsessed. Yeah. It started when I was at that Italian Island game and uh, Italy Island game. And he really is. He's often at fifty six, fifty seven seconds. You know, depending on. But if you start from when he puts the ball down, he's as close to a minute as you could possibly be. And then if you think in in that game, for instance, there was eight goal kicks. That's eight minutes of watching Sexton standing completely still in the middle of the pitch. Let's talk about Wales' opponents then. South Africa, they'll play on Saturday at Twickenham. No game for the box at the weekend, but they did beat USA 64-0 on Wednesday. Most notable, perhaps, for Brian Habana, equaling the record number of World Cup tries. I mean, this is a huge turnaround for the Springboks. That opening game, which really fired up the start of the pool round, and they've come back from that fantastically well. Yeah, they have, haven't they? And that really was a, a blip, wasn't it? I mean, all credit to Japan. And Japan have been, I'm sure, later when we talk about our sort of favourite moments of the of the pool stages, we're probably all going to say that Japan has has brought so much to the tournament. But the but they, that really was a, a misstep, you know. And you just feel that they have just sort of probably got a good bollocking that afternoon um, and sort of sat down and thought, what are we? What do we do? What do we do well? 
let's not forget who we are. I mean, they're they're such a colossally powerful, well-drilled team. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary. I think I think probably that will go down as one of the biggest upsets. Well, I mean, that we said, but it really will, won't it? Um, and I think the box are now sort of firing on all cylinders. They look fantastic. I mean, Habana dropped that fourth try. Um, he'll be kicking himself for that. You know, he could easily have just sailed into the lead. But they look. They look terrific, I think. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching uh, the football when Newcastle were playing Manchester City and Newcastle took a 1-0 lead and then it seemed to be like stinging a line as Sergio Aguero responded by scoring five in 20 minutes or something ridiculous. That's what seems to have happened with uh, South Africa. They've uh, kind of been woken up, but they've been given a kick up the backside by that and they're looking a very dangerous team now I didn't have them down as potential World Cup winners before I think they'd only won one match in 2015 before this tournament but that performance against the USA was pretty uh, pretty uh, critical it was only in the second half though. I think they only got two tries in the first half one of which was a was a was a penalty try and it was the USA's reserves I, I'm not sure how much we can r- read into it really and um any South African doubts might re-emerge if Wales managed to get get ahead of them. I mean, they've, they've they've got a very inexperienced midfield who are clearly very talented. But whether and there were a couple of games on the autumn tour last year when when uh, Pollard didn't do so well at, at fly half, and you know they could be great, but at the same time, there's there, there's still a lot of question marks. I think not just from the Japan game, but from their rugby championship performance this podcast is sponsored by heineken proud to open rugby world cup 2015 get closer to the action at heineken.com slash rugby let's move on then australia plays scotland uh, back at twickenham on sunday uh, so martin that means we do need to discuss that incredible match at st james park scotland beating samoa 36 33 that was a thriller. I don't want to, I feel miserable. I've been wondering what I was going to say about this because obviously it's an extraordinary (laughs) win and I should have been jubilant and dancing around but I I sort of sat on the edge of my sofa feeling sort of nauseous throughout the entire game. Uh, I, I don't think Scotland played well. Um, the first half, they were really sluggish, difficult. We kept all. We always say Scotland are poor starters, and this was yet another poor start. And um, and I and I think Samoa woke up and started playing the kind of rugby that they can play. But I sort of don't quite know how Scotland managed to beat them. It's one of those sort of bizarre results. So I feel like I'm, a, you know, I'm looking a gift horse in the mouth, and this was a great, famous victory, and everybody said it was a sort of marvelous game. And I think I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. But I kind of sat there thinking, what is it? With when Grade Lawler was Grade Laidler was opting to go for the for the try, and what was it? His fourth, fifth, sixth penalty. He chose not to kick, and I was sort of screaming at the TV, saying, "Just kick the penalties! <laughs> just kick. why on earth won't they just do that? Just play it simple. Keep it simple." have a win you know just I mean so it's again it's that they, they do everything they possibly can to make life difficult for themselves um in this case they were lucky and came through and won but i have to say i didn't i didn't feel an enormous sense of pleasure from walking watching the way they played i felt it was there was a lot of errors um i don't know how tactically astute they were um i think samoa um played brilliantly um and all credit to them but i think it you know, it's it's one of those things. I'm not. Is it the best eight teams that have got through to the quarterfinals? I'm not sure. I think that when um, Scotland reflects on that match, to have only won by three points against a team that conceded 19 penalties, 13 in the second half, they'll they'll think they should have done better than that. That it should have been a more comfortable victory. I know Samoa scored a late try, but there was still time for Samoa to come back and win that match. 
And Samoa seemed to have made that deliberate choice to play really exciting, expansive rugby, which yeah. was interesting. Well, that's generally, I think, when they're best, that mixture of you know the physicality they have and, and the, the ball skills. And I, I went to Milton Keynes for their game with Japan the previous weekend, and they were really, really awful. And, um, I mean, Japan, as Japan do, played a really smart and technically accomplished game. But it was really sad seeing Samoa play that badly. Um, though, clearly, I hadn't seen much of the game with Scotland. They brought Mori Fasavalu in. Having watched him at Quinns for three years, I cannot understand any circumstances in which you would ever leave him out of a team, even when he's about 50 years old. Um, maybe that helped. But it, uh, they had, I guess, nothing to lose. Scotland have had a really weird group stage. In the previous World Cup, uh, I mean, and in fact, several previous World Cups, I'm not sure they've even scored a try during the pre-match warm-ups. Um, and yet they've scored, I think, 14 tries in, in four games and looked, you know, looked dangerous with the ball. Still clearly not a complete, a complete team. You think you know, that game with Japan... Had Japan not been coming off a short turnaround, it was so close to that first 45 minutes, would they have... And that could have been very different. But that said, you know, Scotland have taken their chances and, um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how they go against Australia. It, was, it really was a captain's performance as well, wasn't it? I mean, he was a sort of... Laidler was this, this sort of calm, still, icy... He's a very sort of phlegmatic character, isn't he? You know, I mean, he did actually smile in the post-match interview, but he doesn't normally smile. Um, and he sort of... And at the end, I saw well, him going over... Foster, and I think, so, uh, yeah, but he was... Uh, I think it was... I, I take it was his partner, and he was holding a little child at the end, and I sort Let's of almost so. had another sort of insight into this man who seems to be... He's sort of... Small and you know he does actually always make me smile as well because I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the sixth game back slightly when they were teeing off the Six Nations this year they had this very nice setup where all the rugby captains had to ask the next um, team's captain a question and they all asked sort of quite serious questions and Paul O'Connell turned to Greg Laidlaw and said how do you manage to do such clever things with the ball when your hands are so tiny? <laughs> <laughs> so do we think that Australia are just going to be too big an ask for Scotland? Yeah, yes. I think. Uh, I think Scotland could also have a problem if Ryan... It'll be interesting to see if Ryan Wilson gets uh, banned for that stamp, for which he definitely should have uh, been red-carded, I thought. Um, I thought both, I thought the referee had a... Uh, I think it was Jacko Piper for that match, was it? Yeah, I thought he had a very poor game. He should have red-carded Wilson. I thought Samoa concede 19 penalties and not have one player sent to the sin bin is ridiculous as well and I think Wilson could well miss the Australia match OK so before we move on to the other side of the draw we do I'm afraid have to talk about England as we know the very first World Cup host to exit in the pool stage is confirmed after defeat to Australia last week on Saturday they had to play a dead rubber against Uruguay in Manchester a match that no one really wanted but England won 63 with hat-tricks from Jack Noll and 37-year-old Nick Easter George Ford, Henry Slade, Anthony Watson and Jack Noll all playing nicely. Andy, this is a case of what might have been, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, they're always likely to beat Uruguay quite convincingly. Uh, but, you know, seeing Slade play, you know, it just looks like a... It reminded me a bit of Gavin Hentz when he was young, just kind of complete range of skills. And the, the disappointment is not so much that he didn't play in this World Cup, but he hasn't played since last autumn when clearly, you know, he was ready to make... The step up, and you know that's one of the various selection errors they've made. Was you know they've having back twelve trees and Burrell. I think they had to stick with them through the World Cup. They've thrown away kind of forty caps of combined experience 
on a couple of hunches and then didn't trust Slade to come in in the game when you know he could have slotted in in place of Joseph and it wouldn't have required that full reshuffle. Uh, that's that said, um, you know it's. Uh, Unbeaten in one, heading into the Six Nations. Let's let's cling to that. You're only as good as <laughs> as your last game. Um, you can't tell anything from from beating Uruguay uh, clearly. Uh, but yeah, I, mean, it, I think it. This is a, a campaign that will always irritate England fans for you know, what 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 could have been. I think yeah. not necessarily that they could have won it. I mean, clearly they were absolutely outplayed by Australia and did I thought did pretty well to get within seven points of them with. 10 minutes left given the the gulf in class between them um but you know it just a, there was so many little things that could have made such a massive yeah, difference yeah that that moment 9:49 p.m. i've got it written down here on the 26th of september if rob shaw had chosen to kick and that had been converted everything would be different but is that unf- yeah. that's unfair well, I, think, yeah. I think it, it is unfair well it is unfair but at the same time if you think if you sort of distill all sport down to single moments don't you that you might be able to argue that that was the the most the the single most costly mistake ever made in english rugby well, yeah. Well, if you think about yeah. it, if because now we know, I mean, hindsight's marvelous things, but now we know as the pools have unfolded that actually England would have qualified. You know, if they well, yeah, we don't draw, know how the games would have gone. No, no, we didn't know that. We didn't know that, but we do know now, as we do the maths, that they would have qualified with a draw and the points difference. Well, we don't know that Wales so, would have lost to Australia had no, they needed to win. Well, we possibly, oh, possibly would have played differently. But, but as a result well. of that. Just let me get to the end of my little argument <laughs> before they start actually picking holes in it. The, um, you know, do you know what I mean? Sort of possibly, the, well, the team didn't go through. Lancaster could lose his job. Robshaw could lose his position in the team. All of those things could, in a way, be filtered back to that single action. Yes, and the line-out call that yeah, followed. Yeah, terrible line-out call. Yeah. just, I mean, made less sense, as we talked about, I think, on the last, the last um, podcast. And, you know, England were unlucky with... You know, not having Delalio Hill and back still in the team, and Jeremy Guskett would have made a lot of difference if he'd still been at his peak. But um, yeah, can't, you can't legislate for that. And, oh, uh, and they, we wouldn't have progressed further. Surely, this would have been if we'd have got to the quarterfinals. We, the way we were playing. Well, I think in I real, say we. I'm yeah. declaring I'm an England fan. In real terms, that's what happened to England. They got this ridiculous group because of the stupid way the draw was made. So, if you're looking at it as it should have been, they would have lost their sort of Ireland-France-type game in the group. They'd have gone through second and then got hammered in a quarter-final, which, frankly, is just as bad as what's happened. It's mm. just because they've gone out in the group stage, the level of sort of histrionic reaction has been increased. But I think I it's... Don't think, oh, sorry, sorry I, was, I don't think you can distill it down to one moment of the reason for England going out. Uh, we could talk about the selection, the uh, the squad selection, the team selection on for those two matches against Wales and Australia. We could talk about the decisions that Rob Shaw made, that Parling made when calling that line out to the front. We can talk about uh, you know, how much influence do the, do the co- likes of uh, Andy Farrell and uh, Graham Roundtree have. Uh, is Stuart Lancaster the right coach? I think it would take another a whole 45-minute podcast for us to go... <laughs> Discuss the reasons for England's catastrophic failure. We love a good witch hunt, and it would be yeah, witch hunts are great. But I thought uh, going back to the weekend's match against Uruguay, the really depressing thing was England for sixty minutes were played the kind of game where they were giving it to the big forwards, so the likes of Rob Shaw and Launchbury uh, at first receiver and smashing into these tiny little Uruguayans. I mean, both of the Uruguay locks are smaller than I am. It's, ridic- and I'm, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And then sending Nico Easter over for a hat-trick from uh, a, an aggregate of about five metres. It's, it's really uninspiring, I thought. And I think as well, I've, I've, strangely, I've sort of, maybe I'm being Scottish, I've loved backing an underdog. I've, in any sort of pub arguments, I've always taken Lancaster 
the side and I, you know, just for some reason I painted myself in that corner. But actually it was what, I only actually watched the highlights of the game yesterday, the Uruguay-England game. But it was in watching that that I realised that Lancaster does have to go because I, exactly as you say, Dan, it was such a, you know, it was like, here's our chance. We've lost everything. Let's just, you know, he did bring in decent squad. Um, let's play a different game of rugby. Let's just show, let's, play with some passion and some joy you know actually the only real I mean obviously Henry Saves lovely to see that Jack Noel he's not I mean he's a he's a great finisher isn't he on the yeah, wing yeah. I don't think the wings are a problem though they're not that. a wing but yeah. also and I think the only real highlight of yesterday was actually the English fans <coughs> you know I thought it was wonderful sort of sort of sort of air of forgiveness in the air um, and a sort of lap of honour yeah. for the English team if that wasn't merited yeah, I don't know the, what the bench they chose in both of the two big games was utterly baffling to have so little Taste. No flanker and no yeah. uh, Just outside speed backs. Speed on the bench, and um, you know Danny Kerr had a decent game against Uruguay. You know he's a guy that makes things happen, and it, it was bizarre. England gambled everything on being risk averse, which is a really weird <laughs> way to go out. Well, that's enough wallowing in misery. Shall we uh, move on? We'll be back in a moment. We'll talk about. We haven't Thor- talked about Burgess. Well, is that not, are we not contractually obliged <laughs> to bang on for forty minutes about no, let's Burgess? Because people talk about Robshaw being not not quite a seven. Maybe he's a six and a half. Burgess is he a six or a twelve? Clearly, in between, he's a nine. He should be playing scrum half. We'll be back in a moment. Talk about pools C and D after this. I'm John Alomi, and you're listening to the Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast on The Guardian. So yesterday, Ireland came out winners in their top-of-the-table clash with France. The prize for this one, avoiding the All Blacks in the quarters. At 24-9, this was Ireland's biggest win over France since 1975, all done with Sexton and O'Connell having to be taken off after injuries. We didn't really learn much about Ireland from their earlier matches. Um, Martin, let's maybe come to you first. This was the one we'd been waiting for then. This was the big, you know, the cherry on the top of the trifle of the weekend of rugby, wasn't it? Um, And it was... Extraordinary. I think um, Ireland were. It, there was real intelligence in the way they played. I don't know what they were doing with their lineouts, but I think Schmidt has sprinkled some sort of magic fairy dust on them because they seem to win balls that you didn't think they could. Um, I think the fact that they were able to play so well despite losing two or three of their most talismanic players, almost you could argue, better without them. Um, is it shows you that they've got proper depth. I don't know whether they've now got another level below them when they go on to the next thing. Um, but no, an, an absolute joy to watch, you know, to sit there on a sunny Sunday with the curtains drawn. <laughs> uh, it gave you good reason to believe in rugby. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not a big fan of watching Ireland. Normally, I don't find their style of rugby particularly entertaining or attractive to watch. And as I'm not an Irish fan, it's, I'm not invested in it. But uh, that was a phenomenal performance, I thought. Um, the way that uh, when they lost two of their linchpins, two of their leaders uh, of the team, you know, O'Connell and Sexton, and also Omani as well, who had a fan- a- an amazing game before he went off, um, they they almost like uh, like you said, uh, they almost improved when uh, Henderson came on and he was dominating the French line out. I can't remember how I think he made three steal uh, line out steals. Uh, Madigan might well have been a Johnny Sexton clone in a wig. He offered so much control. Um, I was coming before the match. I was. Can you get wigs like that? I'm, I'm a bit out of the loop, to be honest. I mean, that I seems an odd wig. So no, I, I need. I, I should probably one get point, one with. Uh, given I'm balding, back to talking have, hair again. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bit more on hair would be good. There have been some great haircuts, haven't there? It does suggest a great depth in the squad and a belief in the squad if they can have these disruptive moments and 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 continue. Yeah, and I think I think it showed they've got flexibility in their game. I mean, they were pretty unimpressive against Italy and. Uh, 
lacked any real cohesion and, and invention. Um, but that was pretty much a complete all-round performance against against France, who were you know clearly still not great um, and pretty blunt. Um, but it was really impressive. Uh, it, they've sort of had the absolutely perfect World Cup schedule, just a gradual build into the tournament, no real pressure on getting through, and um, they're in a pretty good position. I think uh, Madigan's performance was uh, really good for a, mm. a guy who's you know had a few doubts over him uh, as a in terms of how much Ireland would suffer were Sexton to get injured. I think that will give them a lot of it's been it's sort of been the confidence. tournament because it's funny, isn't it? We underestimate these tens. I mean, think what everybody was saying about Bernard Foley before the Australia game, and he seems to have sort of filled his shirt and his boots, hasn't he? Yes. And now we're saying the same about the Irish ten. It seems to be these sort of underestimated, underrated second strings um, tens come in and then just thrive in that situation. Sh- Sean O'Brien, do we think he was lucky to get away with that punch? He was naughty. I mean, it was probably a yellow card. Um, so, how much it would have affected the overall game, we don't, we don't know. It, do you think he'd probably get a one-week ban for yeah, it? Yeah, I, I imagine he'll miss the course final. Yeah. yeah, which will be a real shame. And then, of course, man of the match, wasn't he? So, yeah. um, it seems odd. A bit to, silly. Who I mean, says cheats never prosper. Right? <laughs> it, was, uh, it must have uh, been quite a blow, mustn't it? Though to sort of bring a huge man like that to his knees for two yes. or three minutes. But you know, it was yeah. retribution, I think, because Pape put his knee in Heaslip's back a couple of years ago, didn't he? Yeah. Looked yes, but well you'd think been. in a World Cup game, <laughs> do you just think, oh, I should really concentrate on not getting retribution not having a fight in the first ago. minute. <laughs> I, I'm coming to the there's no such thing as being unlucky with injuries. You're just lucky if you don't have them. I mean, it's just a fact of the the way rugby is played and the, the way the rucks have evolved into just basically people flying in like mm, exercise mm. at them um it's you know that's it's it's going to happen so uh, depth is clearly massively important and you need you need luck not to get players injured there I mean, is uh, yeah. but don't you think there's a, i mean there is a why i'm sure there's going to be all kinds of discussions about this and i think injury toll is going to be one of the kind of things that they're going to look at at the end of the tournament because actually even four or five years ago Seeing a stretcher on a pitch was unusual, wasn't it? When they first invented those little golf buggies that came on, that was a kind of, oh, God, look what they brought on. Whereas now, you know, if you if you don't have two or three stri- people stretched off, you don't feel yeah. like you've had your money's worth. <laughs> and oh, it's just got the oxygen mask out yeah. again. But some of the, <laughs> the, um, like, so, some of the sort of tackles that people are putting in, which are not, they're not just tackles aimed at, at sort of, you know, bouncing the ball out. They are tackles with menace, aren't they? With extreme tackles with extreme prejudice, you know. And in an odd way, I think it'll end up possibly spoiling the game because these big smother tackles are causing all these head injuries and upper body injuries that people didn't used to have and they're probably going to have to bring in some sort of strange new law that you're only it'll be like the old days when you have to tackle people around the knees I mean you don't really see a tackle around the knees anymore do you so Probably Ireland of course is the um, biggest threat to rugby today <laughs> Ireland uh, now have Argentina on Sunday in Cardiff what do we make of the prospects of Ireland defeating the Argentinians I think um I think it does depend on how those injuries go. I mean, uh, in terms of ability, I don't think Henderson and Madigan are much of a step down. We saw that on uh, Sunday. But in terms of the leadership, you'll need to win a World Cup course final. They could be big misses. We'll have to wait and see how they go. Um, I really like the look of Argentina. I think they're a fantastic side. They're not just a pack. They've got really good playmakers in Sanchez and Hernandez at 10 and 12. That back three of Tuchelet, uh Cordero and Imhoff is... Just about the quickest in the in the tournament, I think. They're they're a proper all round team, and I think Ireland definitely can't be complacent against them. It's good. 
I'm erring towards Argentina upsetting them, but I, I don't want to call it, even though I just did. Well, it was nine tries for the Pumas yesterday. They beat Namibia 64-19. The, the third highest try scorers of the tournament have a formidable scrum and a vast array of, of talented backs. And are you equally concerned about Ireland's chances? Um, well, I'm not sort of concerned. I don't really mind who wins this one. <laughs> um, I love the way Argentina play. They're, as you say, they're just a complete 15-man game and great amount of wit and invention, sidesteps, ambitious passing. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they've shown that in their game since New Zealand, whether they can do it against a team <laughs> as good as Ireland. I think this is probably the most interesting of the quarterfinals. I think it, 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 it could be a fantastic game. I'd expect Ireland to play you know, quite a cautious game. Uh, as you know, they they're so good at making kind of the right decisions, but Argentina have got threats all over. Uh, it, it, I'm hoping it'll be a classic. On the last podcast, I suggested that Japan against Samoa could be a classic. I was about as wrong as it's possible to get <laughs> on that, but I hope I'm not wrong uh, on the, on this. Also, in, in Argentina's favour, I think I think the bookies have Ireland as sort of slight favourites. Um, they get to meet Diego Maradona if they reach the semi-finals. I mean that's. You know, I don't know if you saw the video of them dancing in the dressing room with Maradona after the uh, uh, the game the other day, but I mean that's got to be a massive incentive. It was quite lovely that I thought they just all yeah. everyone looked so happy. There was so much glee in that dressing room. I and I mean, oh. who do, do Ireland have anything that they? I mean, will they get an offer Bono? to meet Mark Lawrenson yeah. after Bono, the game? I mean, Bono that's not going to have the same. <laughs> it's not going to have the same impact, is it? The eighties. Johnny Logan, legends. maybe from yeah. uh, the Eurovision or something. Uh, a nice moment in that match um, when Namibia prop Johnny Redlinghuis on his last appearance uh, took the conversion and failed. Uh, lots of smiles all round. Did you see that moment? A very it was uh, the, the, the wrong physical lovely. type to take the kick, but yeah. wasn't it, it a was wonderful moment? It was the best conversion I've seen since Mark Andrews tried one for the Barbarians about ten years ago. <laughs> I think it was. The, um, it reminded. It sort of took me. I, it gave me a shudder because it took me back to my school rugby, and I was a poor rugby player and played in a poor team. And I remember playing against one team where they were actually arguing about whose turn it was to score a try because they all wanted to get on the score sheet. <laughs> and it sort of reminds me of that. I, well, I think it's um, actually a very <clears throat> momentous moment for rugby because you no know, goal kicking like that. It's, it's not the most exciting aspect of the game. It's you know everyone stands around for a minute and then someone kicks a, a ball. Uh, but it would be much more exciting if it was on a strict rotation. Mm. So, you know, you couldn't just have a specialist goal. It would be a far greater test of a nation's all-round skills. Or they if, could do... They should have or the lottery. opposition should be allowed to... They should do have a lottery, different. shouldn't they? should pull out a number from yeah. a sort of little black bag and it's, oh, it's number four yeah. is going to take this... Okay. Be like jury service. <laughs> <laughs> well, France, of course, play New Zealand on Saturday, also in Cardiff. The All Blacks warming up for this one by Tonking Tonga, 47-9. That's their 11th successive win in the World Cup. Looks a little less rusty in the first half, was simply sensational in the second half. Ben Smith and Nehi Milner-Scudder were the standout players. Uh, are these still everyone's favourites? Well, before the tournament started, everybody kind of felt sorry for um, New Zealand that they were going to have such an easy run to the quarterfinals and they weren't going to be tested and everybody thought that that was a poor... So everybody finds, tries to find reasons. When we were in Christchurch, everybody thought that home advantage might be against New Zealand. And you just mean it's one of those sort of odd things. Whereas here they are, they've arrived at the quarterfinals. They haven't really sort of played a game of rugby yet, have they? They're all fresh, other than poor old um, Tony Woodcock who's gone off with a hamstring. They've lost one person. The rest of them are absolutely sort of... They're all actually itching for a decent game, aren't they? 
I mean, they look sensational. They look sort of calm. I mean, as soon as sort of Sonny Bill Williams gets the ball, you sort of send a shudder through the entire stadium, doesn't it? Because you imagine he's just going to take strides through any defence. I do wonder if uh, Graham Henry's been, sorry, Graham Henry, Steve Hansen's been uh, kind of chopping and changing his team for all the matches since the Argentina game. He hasn't really set, given uh, his first 15 a proper run. I, I do wonder if that'll work against them. Coming up, uh, that they won't coalesce. Yeah, the that they need there'll to. be a slight lack of cohesion there coming up against France. Um, I thought again, going back to the refereeing, uh, New Zealand kind of got away with it against Tonga. There was that one period where Tonga mauled them back about twenty meters. It clearly should have been a penalty try, and just uh, it was just a yellow card again. And again, the All Blacks managed to kind of hold out with their 14 men. and because well, it's it. difficult for the referees. I mean, the All Blacks are still complaining about a decision from a game with Wales in 1905, aren't they? So, um, <laughs> I love the irony in 2007 of the All Blacks of all teams moaning about a forward <laughs> pass going unnoticed. Uh, I think I think the, the All Black pack's been not that impressive and uh, France have strength uh, there. I think they'll probably have to play a pretty limited game, France, if they're going to beat New Zealand. Um... Uh, but I can't. I can't see New Zealand making. Well, for a start, ma- making the same mental errors they made in two thousand and seven. Uh, but also being as unlucky as they were then with having two fly halves going off injured. But you know, it's it, it, uh, France have got a chance. It's lovely the way this sport throws up these ironies, isn't it? The same match, the same state. You yeah. know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, uh, I do hope they get Wayne Barnes to referee it, just <laughs> just to see quite what vitriol emerges from from New Zealand. What just, I lo- just for the appointment, they could, they don't even mean it. Just say that he's going to referee the game. Or if whoever is refereeing it gets a Wayne Barnes mask made and just wears that for the game. <laughs> what I love about this France team is uh, the kind of renaissance of uh, Frederick Michelac uh, fly half. You don't, we don't have enough uh, Maverick fly half succeeding these days. And everyone thought he got away, uh, he was finished. But I mean, this is a guy who makes Carlos Spencer look like a metronome. <laughs> but it, it's just wonderful that he's having such a good tournament. And, I mean, if he has the game of his life against the All Blacks, then. You know, the All Blacks are going to worry about that. This podcast is sponsored by Heineken. Proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Get closer to the action at heineken.com slash rugby. Well, before we end, we should have more of a nod to some of the teams that are exiting. And who should we give props to? Georgia for their dramatic comeback against Namibia. And that secured qualification for the next World Cup. Romania for coming back from 15 points down to beat Canada. Japan, of course. I mean, is that the moment of the World Cup, do we think? Oh, yeah. That's the, I don't think we need to argue yeah. the toss on that one. It's That's the moment not just of this World Cup that's the moment of Rugby World Cups <laughs> I think it's, yeah. and of course so important for the next one yeah, yeah. yeah. and also just the fact that the way they did it was through ambition and skill yeah. uh, it wasn't a kind of spawny dodgy penalty uh, the, uh, in the pub the other night a friend of mine was making his case that if teams were politicians then Japan would be Jeremy Corbyn because they're sort of um, determined uh, sort of uh, left field and come up with these surprising wins which are achieved in ways that nobody else has thought of playing the game <laughs> and the other, the other impressive thing about Japan is that their players aren't they're not like the South Sea Island the Pacific Island teams whose players all play in the big leagues they play for big clubs like Clermont and for um, Toulon and they play in the top 14 and they play in Super Rugby and they play in the in the Premiership these are they, a lot of their players come from the Japanese domestic league which isn't 
widely regarded as the most high quality. But it's been getting better, though, and they've had they a have lot been of getting big, better, and they're getting super rugby franchise. Overseas, they? Yeah. But I think as well, I think the way that they're playing, going back to the Corbyn point, is we've been talking about the injuries and things like that, the sort of deliberate, sort of menacing tackles that the sort of the top eight are putting into each other. And Japan are showing that actually you can play rugby. Skill can outwit um, brawn sometimes. I think the fact that there is this sort of culture of respect in Japan, you know, I love the fact that when they have a sub, they often bow as they cross the line, you know, and going, um, you know, and the tackles are hard tackles, but they're not tackles which are aimed at putting other players out of the game. Um, so I think there is a sort of, you know. What about our try of the, of the competition so far? I'm going to go with uh, Veronique Geneva's um, try for Fiji against Wales. And that pains me as a Northampton fan because he's a Leicester player. Um, <laughs> from the 22 over the line in, it felt like about 10 seconds. It was ridiculously fast. The offloading, you had no idea how the ball was uh, sticking, um, sticking to the hands. And Wales, I mean, Wales aren't exactly slouches. They just couldn't keep up. Yeah. It was, Fiji were fantastic in that game, but generally only when there was chaos on the pitch and as soon as it got you know Wales managed to get some kind of defensive line and it went to rucks then it didn't really suit the Fijians but that try uh, Ticker Atuma did more good things in two seconds in that try than he did in an entire season for Quinns last year I think Fiji have also had the best player of the pool stages in uh, Nakafawa he's uh, Nakarawa yeah he's been he is a god in a white shirt and um, yeah I mean they, they I think were the most the most wronged by the World Cup draw of any team what about Bergamasco being carried shoulder high at the end? He wasn't on the pitch for the match, but he was there. That was a wonderful moment. Yeah, I would hope he'd suffered a broken nose during that, just to add, I don't know how many he's had in his career. <laughs> but you'd think I'd be, just sort of said, line up to smack him in the face. Yeah. It's the way he would want to go. Yeah. And things you never thought you'd see at a, at a rugby match, two Argentina fans dancing a tango in Gloucester, which was rather fantastic. We've had, that. we've had marriage proposals, we've had lots of tears. One person who I have to say, this sounds slightly odd, but I have to say I've really enjoyed um, David Flatman's commentary you know he's such a sort of he's come from that sort of the Aviva you know country and he's now a kind of seems to be a sort of front and center um commentator and he just sort of adds sort of he's so generous to I mean as a former player to what's going on on the pitch he really knows what's going on and funny and um so I really enjoy his commentary enthusiasm the thing with the commentary that really annoyed me yesterday during the Japan USA game was um AJ McGinty the uh USA fly half his name's Alan goes by AJ I think it was John Champion John Champion on ITV kept referring to him as Adj McGinty (laughs) and kept using his first name as well even though there was no need to do it Please, football, take him. Well, back. I'm going to blame Mullins for that. I think it was Mullins. Oh, was it yeah. Mullins? But I don't know. I don't know. But they're they're kind of interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell her voices apart. Um, little anecdote <laughs> to finish. It was my birthday a couple of weeks ago, and my son made me a as a birthday present. He he, he cut up a World Cup guide and made me a little poster, and he he got the make them giants pictures of the England players and he'd drawn a little picture of my face and stuck it on Courtney Lawless <laughs> which is not a body type that I can really hope to emulate um, and then he'd, he'd put in the, the, the final he'd cut out the, the final and he'd written his name and daddy uh-huh. And I'd beaten him thirteen twelve, and it's because even at the age of six in his first World Cup, he realised that the final is probably going to be grindingly tense and low scoring. So that's kind of an, just an instinct for the game. Absolutely fantastic. Well, that's it for this episode of our Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. Thanks to our panel: Andy Saltzman, Martin Love from the Observer, and the Guardian's Dan Lucas. We'll be back next week to discuss the quarterfinal matches and preview the semis. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or keep up with us at Acast. Com slash rugby world cup 
Make sure you check out all the Guardian's previews and coverage of the tournament at theguardian.com slash sport. I'm Sandy Waugh. Our producer is Pete Sale. Thanks for listening. Listening.